0: Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. Each week, I'm going to be joined by Chatham House experts. We have lots of them, as well as journalists, policymakers, and former diplomats. And we've got one of those on the show this week. And we're going to talk about the critical events shaping our world today. On this edition of the podcast, we'll be discussing the UK's new prime minister, Rishi Sunak, and the challenges facing him as Britain's youngest leader in modern times, rebuilding the country's reputation in the world. And this week, as well at Chatham House, we hosted John Kerry, the US Special Envoy on Climate. I'll be sitting down with an expert from our Environment Programme to discuss what he said in conversation with me, and what hopes there might be for COP27, the Climate Change Summit. Let's start by talking about the UK. When we recorded this part of the conversation, I was actually in the US. But thanks to the brilliant editing of Chatham House, you may detect only a very slight change in location. I'm delighted to have with me to discuss all this, John Kampfner, the Executive Director of our UK in the World Initiative, who's wrestling with exactly that question of Britain's reputation in the world. Hi, John. Hi there, Roman. Very good to have you here. And we're also joined by Hans Kundani, an Associate Fellow with our Europe Programme, and by Sir Simon Fraser, formerly of the Foreign Office, but now a Senior Advisor for our Europe Programme and Co-Founder of Flint Global, the advisory firm. Hans and Simon, very good to have you here.
1: Yes, thank you very much. Good to be here.
2: Thank you for having me too.
0: This week saw Rishi Sunak become Prime Minister following a short but dramatic leadership contest where he emerges the overwhelming favourite of Conservative MPs, despite a last-minute bid by Boris Johnson of return and Penny Morden's efforts to stand as well. John, what does this election of Rishi Sunak now mean for perceptions of the UK?
3: Well, Bronwyn, we've been running this project, I think we started it in March, so how long is that? Six or seven months. We're now into our third Prime Minister, wonder how many more we are going to get through before we we complete the project it is an extraordinary period for britain the huge interest around the world is matched also by complete consternation people just not quite having can not quite able to comprehend the extent of this psychodrama taking place in britain so now we have Rishi sunak who has just made his first parliamentary appearance he has just assembled his first cabinet. It's pretty much a case of back to the future, trying pretty desperately to knit together these very antagonistic and divided and dysfunctional parts of the Conservative Party. All the while, the British economy is tanking. So it is a desperately difficult situation for the UK.
0: I talked about the election of Rishi Sunak, but of course, that was an election among MPs. What does he do about whether he has a mandate for? what he's trying to do in government. I was talking to someone in the Foreign Office earlier today, and you could hear the demonstrations outside the window.
3: Yes, absolutely. All the political, other political parties, as they might, are calling for a general election. This is five prime ministers now, since David Cameron was the, the first incumbent, certainly since the Brexit referendum. It is a very difficult argument for the Conservatives to make. Technically and constitutionally, they have every right to stick around and make the best fist of it until the end of 2024. And that's going to be the test case for Sunak. He has a multiplicity of problems. As I say, he has a budget deficit that is the latest estimates is that it's £35 billion, so $40 billion, even by the poor exchange rate of now. It He has a multiplicity of international problems. And most of all, how is he going to keep his party together. He is accused of undermining Boris Johnson, something I think a lot of people will say was fair enough, given Johnson's behaviour. And Liz Truss barely lasted a month and a half. And those two were at loggerheads. So there are so many different factions and so many different issues. From tax and spend, to fracking and energy, to migration and many others on which the party is deeply split.
0: Simon, this doesn't sound like a recipe for stability, does it?
3: No, it doesn't. Although I do think actually,
1: in the circumstances, the sort of configuration you've now got at the top of the government is about as good as this depleted Conservative Party could find. That may be a small mercy, but I think that's right. But no, I think that the prospects don't look very clear for stability. And of course, there are very important early hurdles to be to be crossed most most immediately the autumn statement that the Chancellor is going to now introduce on the 17th of November.
0: I've been in New York and Washington this week, and a lot of people are asking, this this feels like years, six years to be precise, of turmoil in Britain, not just a few weeks or a, a year or so because of Boris Johnson. How much of this dates from Brexit in your view?
1: Well, I mean... It... To be honest with you, I think a lot of it does date from Brexit. I mean, some of it – the the origins go back to the financial crisis in 2008 and possibly beyond. But I think Brexit was the sort of seminal event that has created this ongoing turbulence in our politics. So, yes, over six years, five prime ministers – Extraordinary internal disruption. I mean, we talk about Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. We forget what it was like under Theresa May and just how difficult that government, that government's life was as well. So it's been going on a long time. And the problem I think that we have is that we still have a conservative government which finds it impossible to acknowledge publicly that this is the case. So they will talk about COVID. They talk about the impact of Ukraine on energy prices, the international economic situation, the slowing of growth, all of which is fair enough and is true and affects other countries. But I do really think that it's time that we found a way publicly to acknowledge that Brexit in this country is a very big part of, of what we're dealing with. And actually, Rishi Sunak didn't do that in his statement at number 10 Downing Street when he came in. This is not so that, you know, I'm not making the argument that we should do that so that we can return to the EU and undo Brexit. I'm making that comment because I think that it's, it's a necessary precondition for addressing some of the problems and finding a, the most constructive way to move forward.
0: I'm interested you shut off that, that taboo question, if you like. though Claire Foges, a Conservative commentator, was arguing in the Times in the past week that some politician is going to have to raise it at some point because of the Tortuousness, she argued, of the um, economic assertions it required politicians to make, which is that Brexit could be economically good for the country, including in the short term. Hans, what's your take on all this? You spent a great time in Europe writing about Europe and Europe's democracy.
2: I think I, I sort of agree slightly more with, with Simon than with John. In, in particular, the, the, the idea that this is a psychodrama, I think, downplays sort of suggests that this is about individuals. Um, I think this is actually a very real political drama. It's about different ideologies and different views within the Conservative Party and within the country that are battling it out with each other. And and I think, you know, to some extent it does go back to Brexit, but I would go even further. Simon, you said, you know, perhaps go back to the global financial crisis in 2008. But the way I think about Brexit itself is that, what it did was it exposed and brought to the surface a whole series of problems that went back several decades. I would say, from my particular perspective, going back to the neoliberal turn and, and to Thatcher.
0: What kind of problems has?
2: Well, basically, I think economic problems to do with that, that created you know, massive growth in inequality. Um, also connected to that, you know, the, the, a certain type of growth model, which was around low productivity and low wages, uh, and, you know, that wasn't all to do with the EU, but it did have something to do with the EU. If you think about the way that, for example, the single market project, you know, and Thatcherism very much coincided, you know, the single market was a Thatcherite project. So, you know, I think that you have to go back even further. It's a really interesting point.
0: Nicole, the Brexit vote didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't the kind of accident that some commentators in other countries Sometimes sometimes regarded. John, you spend, you're off to Berlin soon. You've written a very good book about why the Germans do it better. How does it look from there?
3: What countries across Europe are looking for, and it's possible that Rishi Sunak can deliver in this regard, is stability. If you think of the old ways people looked at British foreign policy, this is something Simon, having me right at the heart of it, will know. They saw Britain as dependable, um, reliable, old fashioned sometimes but always the country that was good at convening partly by dint of the the good fortune of the English language and also if you take an occidental view the sort of centrality of london as a city so britain was in diplomatic terms held in high regard and i do i talk to as we all do talk to diplomats british and others who have really felt so hamstrung to deliver over the last several years, because, and if you talk to foreign governments, as you do, they, they were saying, particularly with regard to the Johnson administration, whatever they told you on a Monday, you'd have to cross check on a Tuesday to, to see whether the Brits were still holding true to their promise. So as I was writing for Chatham House and, and elsewhere in, in the last couple of days, Britain could do far worse than just to become a little bit more dull in the last in the next few days, weeks and months. One foreign correspondent in London said he adored being here because it was the gift that kept on giving, that every day he woke up, he would land on a front-page story without actually having to do very much.
0: They'd just have to switch on the television and look at the podium outside. Exactly. So
3: let's, let's make it harder for foreign correspondents. Let's make them have to fight harder to make interesting stories, and let's make it easier for our diplomats to get Britain... Uh, back in that place where people can say, yes, we agree, we disagree, we're going to have tough negotiations on this, or that, but it's grown up again. And I do think, actually, in spite of everything that, that Sunak does have that opportunity, there is still a reservoir of goodwill to the UK, he needs to move on Europe, there were signs even that Liz Truss was beginning to move a little bit on the Northern Ireland Protocol, let's see, it's very sensitive. But from an incredibly low base, there are there is the prospect of things becoming just a little bit less bad in coming months.
2: I, I do think that during this period where there was more stability in Britain, as, as I said earlier, there there were some real problems with 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 the British economy at, at that time. I think it's worth saying that. But the other thing is that I think it's also also worth. We, I think we need to avoid also making the mistake of thinking about the world's percep- reducing the world's perception of us to the perception of continental Europeans, because obviously they have a particular view, a particular interest, which has to do specifically with the European Union. I think if you go beyond Europe, in different parts of the world, things look a little bit different in terms of the way that the UK is. Concerned.
0: That is absolutely true. And as I said, I've I, I spent a lot of this week talking uh, in, in the US about that. But I was p- picking out Europe because of, uh, you know, the centrality of some of these questions about how to deal with our our nearest trading partners, Simon. What would you do if you were advising Rishi Sunak about about this this question of how to repair Britain's reputation in the world?
1: Uh, the, the broader reputation. Well i mean i think I, I mean I, I agree with much of what of what John has said i 'm not sure that we want to become boring, but the first thing we 've got to do obviously is stabilize the position in relation to the markets and our economy in the short term because actually you know that sort of downward spiral is very bad for the reputation of our country
0: all right, so a credible economic plan at home
1: credible short term economic plan followed by credible longer term Policies to address the issues in our in our economy, but I mean, if you look at it from the perspective of international investors, for example, they want to see stability and predictability and professionalism in government. Uh, they want to see good policies from their perspective and obviously tax policies something that matters there but 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 the most important thing is this stability issue. You know, in a sense, it doesn't matter whether they're paying a little bit more tax here or there. What they want to know is that over a medium term period, things are not going to keep chopping and changing. And I think, in a sense, that's the same for foreign governments.
0: I don't mean to keep hammering on the Europe question, but it's hard to get rounded until that's dealt with. Do you think a deal is close on Northern Ireland? Could it be?
1: I don't know whether Deed deal is close on Northern Ireland. I mean, Rishi Sunak has promised that he will pass the, the Northern Ireland that, that is so controversial. And he's, of course, got himself into – he's always got to face the fact that he's got to manage that wing of his party.
0: And this is the law that allows Britain to walk away from that treaty that it signed with the, the EU and gives ministers yes, all kinds of other powers.
1: Uh, indeed, which is very controversial. But my own view is, by, by whatever means, I do not think that either the British government or the European Union actually wants to get into a full confrontation on Northern Ireland. I think the in, the instinct on both sides will be to find a, a way through. And then there's a much broader question that lies behind that, which is, you know, if we're going to succeed as a country, we've got to find a way of putting ourselves onto a better better footing in terms of access to the largest market that we trade with, and also a better footing politically with our European democratic partners. Uh, And, you know, I think we've just got to look for a way forward there. We've got to get out of this sort of cycle of recrimination and into a more virtuous spiral. And I hope that Rishi Sun understands.
0: Hans, you were saying, look, beyond Europe. Okay, what about China? One of the most difficult questions, it seems to me, for UK foreign policy, after years of careful ambivalence, talking tough, but but, courting all kinds of commercial ties, what what does Britain do now?
2: Well, I don't think there is any going back to the China policy of the Cameron Osborne era. So some people... Uh, that that, that, That was looking for lots and lots
0: of commercial ties.
2: And, and you know, because I think in some ways it's partly what what troubles me about 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 Rishi Sunak is 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 you know in, in a sense I think it is a return to some of the thinking of the Cameron and Osborne government, um, but I think on China I I, I don't see a, a return to that policy as as being possible, partly because of, you know, the way that China has changed since then, but also I think because of the way that, for example, US policy has has shifted as as well. So I think there'll be, I think we'll, we'll, you know, continue to sort of move in in the direction that we have been doing, which is towards a much more hawkish approach to China. And I think the difficult question um, will be around the extent to which we want to decouple economically from China. I think that's not just a, a dilemma for the UK. I think it's a, di- a dilemma for for everyone. And and here, I think, again, you know, to, to return to the point I made earlier, I think it's it's worth stressing that although, you know, Britain clearly faces some difficult economic choices, I think that also goes for other European countries. This this question of the China policy is, is
0: as you said, is, decoupling is a, is a neat or, or rather modish word for what can be very expensive to try and cut or reduce those supply chains that have given us cheap phones, cheap, lots of... Other things, John. We haven't mentioned Ukraine at all and policy about Russia, and this is one of the most consistent and widely praised parts of Britain, British foreign policy. Where do you see that going?
3: I, I see no change in that. Sunak, Truss, Johnson have continued this policy set out by Johnson. Let's ignore for a moment Britain's ignominious position towards Russia and and the use of London as a money laundering centre for so many years. A good deal before, let's say six months before Putin invaded Ukraine, the Brits were already uh, pretty prescient and pretty advanced in terms of their thinking on Ukraine. Uh, The Germans in particular, the French and others, have taken time to do that. And it's been well received by Zelensky. It's also been very well received, as you know, in Washington. And it is a good example of where British diplomacy and action at their best and consistency are are absolutely important so i don't see any change i don't see notwithstanding the incredible difficult winter that the uk along with equivalent countries is going to have in terms of energy prices and cost of living crisis i don't see any diminution in public support for a a tough line on that and that's the consistency that other governments are looking for again whether they agree or they disagree and just briefly one point on on China to mention, when James Cleverly was making his first trip to East Asia just a few weeks ago, during the brief as foreign secretary, as foreign secretary, having just been appointed by Liz Truss and he's just been reappointed by Rishi Sunak, and he's not familiar with that area by his own admission. He was quite struck by the extent of the polite criticism of the UK again on this question, in a different relief to to the Europe question on consistency. It was one minute you're rolling out the red carpet, next minute you're talking about acute threat. Can you please arrive at a position, broadly speaking, and stick to it? And that's roughly, I think, where the Brits are going to end up. I've been involved behind the scenes in some of the discussions around the update on the integrated review on security and defence. And the question is really down to just where on the equilibrium Britain is, is going to end up in terms of a strong sense of economic resilience and not being dependent on China for important resources, while at the same time also being open to various normal diplomatic and and business channels because China is not going away.
0: Let's bring all this round finally then to the question of energy and climate change. And Britain obviously hosted last year's COP environmental summit on climate change, made a lot of commitments there. Simon, what would you recommend the Prime Minister does now?
1: Well, I do think we need to make sure that the legacy of the Glasgow COP is is maintained. And so the UK needs to take a leading role in COP27 and work with the Egyptians on it. I think it's a shame, actually, if it's true that uh, the king was uh, discouraged from attending, I think... That, by Liz by the, ...by the previous prime minister. Because, you know, I think, you know, talk about British soft power. If the king were to go there, I think it would be a very good signal. So that's a shame. But I think the other thing is that, that COP27 is pretty challenged because I'm not sure that there's a huge amount of momentum behind a lot of the initiatives that were taken in Glasgow. And clearly the environment has got much... So, context let 's say has got much more difficult in terms of the pressures that people are facing, however, I, I think that you know i 'm I'm, I'm optimistic i 'm hopeful that we will get through it it 's not going to be a great milestone cop it doesn 't need to be what it needs to be is not a failure, and therefore, if we can get agreement on a reasonable agreement on climate finance, if we can push forward on emissions and maintain the situation, perhaps that 's the most we should be hoping for and let 's remember. The real action is taking place elsewhere in the real world. And there, the sort of acceleration of investment in renewables and alternative sources of energy and the fundamental strategic shift that we're seeing in Europe
3: now on energy policy, those are actually more optimistic signs.
0: Thank you, John.
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I would agree with, with Simon on that. And it's, it's an important moment in terms... But again, it's trust going back to the domestic agenda for a second in her brief tenure started to go soft on Britain's 2050 commitment. And having just chaired with reasonable success uh, COP26, for Britain once again to flip-flop, it's very important that Rishi Sunak brings the position back to what it should have remained.
2: Hans, would you reinvite the King? I don't have a strong view on that one way or the other, to be honest.
1: I mean, I think just to come back on that, if I may mind, it's very important that, that the prime minister does go. And it's very important that we fulfill all the commitments that we made at COP. It's absolutely essential.
2: I think the, the one thing I would add on the on the climate and energy issue is I think there is a very real tension here. <laughs> created by the war in ukraine and it has created i think very difficult challenges between on the one hand you know sustainability on the other hand uh, energy security and 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 you know and 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 prices and i think that, again that's a that's a dilemma that other european countries and, and other countries around the world face as well germany reverting for example to the use of coal you know which is quite extraordinary
0: and of course fracking for gas was one of the things that that triggered the the, the final moments of Liz truss's premiership. A new feature we're starting on the podcast each week is questions from panellists from Chatham House members. You may have seen on LinkedIn and in our newsletter some invitations to send questions to our producer, John Pollock. Be sure to keep an eye out and send those questions in. We'll read them out on the podcast. This is a question from Mark Izet, who says, which three capitals should the Prime Minister visit and why? And,
2: I think we tend to overestimate the importance of these questions around which places politicians visit but i suppose if i'm forced to answer i would say i would say washington new delhi and Dublin.
0: Thank you. Grudging answer. Simon, what would you say?
2: Well, I think the new prime minister needs to
1: send a signal about who we are in the world and what, we are, what we're about. And therefore, without any doubt, he should go to Washington, Berlin and Paris as his first three targets to demonstrate that we are a serious Western democracy that is eager to cooperate and collaborate with our partners in a an increasingly challenged world. He can go elsewhere after that, but that is the initial statement.
3: He will go, I imagine. Maybe first, if security allows to Kiev very quickly in order to reaffirm Britain's staunch defense of Ukraine, certainly he will want to do that, whether his security detail allow him to do that is another matter. He will certainly to go, to, go to Washington for traditional reasons. He will want to avoid Brussels, it being the centre of that particular institution. So I'm with Simon, but I think in order to triangulate, he won't want to offend either the Germans or the French by having to choose one of them. So he'll go to both on the same day.
0: Thank you all for those thoughts. So Of course, we didn't get into the Belfast, Edinburgh, Cardiff question, but that might be for another discussion, those problems coming down the line at him as well. And this brings us to John Kerry and other leaders and envoys flying into Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt in about 10 days' time to try to take the climate negotiations forward. Well, I'm now joined by Anna Eberg, who's our research associate specializing in climate and negotiations of that, and who's been working on a series of reports coming up to the Sharm meeting. Anna, great to have you here. Hi Bronwyn, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, we've both been in our big conference room downstairs listening to John Kerry. I was was having a conversation with him and then we had a forest of hands and questions and online questions and everything. What stood out for you about what he said?
4: Well, I think it was a very interesting event and of course very timely. We're just a few days away from COP27 and clearly the US is focusing a lot on implementation. That was his key slogan for COP27 implementation plus so it's clear that the US wants countries to come to Sharm el-Sheikh with clear policies in place to show how they will deliver on the commitments made in Glasgow and then he also emphasized that it's really important that those countries which have not yet set ambitious emission reduction targets step up their game so that's uh, one of the things I took away from his remarks.
0: One of the first things I asked him was what difference has there been in the past year since the Glasgow summit that the UK held, and this is what he had to say.
5: There is a great deal of implementation of what happened in Glasgow taking place. Now, is there enough? No. Does there have to be more? Massively. And, and more and faster. I think that is really the hallmark of, of what needs to be taking place. But we left Glasgow with 65% of global GDP committed to legitimate plans that if followed, could keep 1.5 degrees alive. The problem is if you only have 65% of global GDP doing that, you got a real problem. And the other 35% has to come to the table with significant increases. That's what we called for in Glasgow. We said specifically that there would be a review that countries that hadn't put in a sufficient NDC need to raise their NDC or submit one. NDC, of course, being your national determined contribution. So, you know, we need to make sure that COP 27 in Charmal sheik is the implementation COP. Dot, 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 plus. Implementation of promises made which Fatih Birol and the IEA said, if you did all of that, you would by 2050 be holding the Earth's temperature increase to 1.8 degrees. But the plus is getting these other countries to get a much higher percentage of global GDP committed to the same track. Uh, will rem- remains to be seen if we can get there.
0: Secretary Kerry is setting out the, the aims for the SHARM summit, and as you said, looking very much at implementation. Do you think We should be optimistic. We've had these very sobering reports from the UN in the the past couple of days.
4: It's a good question. And uh, there are several challenges on multiple fronts. As you mentioned, the UN came out with a report just yesterday taking stock of the 2030 national emission reduction targets that have been submitted before Glasgow and also after. And it's clear that we're very far from being on track for 1.5 degrees. Can you take us into the detail a little bit? Yes, so at COP twenty six in Glasgow, governments agreed because there was clearly a gap between the targets and where we needed to be, to be on track for one point five degrees. So governments agreed to come back to the table this year with enhanced with an enhanced offer, so to speak. And unfortunately we've only seen a handful of governments come forward this year. And when the UN took stock of this, they're showing that we're on course for two point five degrees instead of one point five which is clearly very worrying. So I do think we really need to see more countries step up their game when it comes to targets at Sharm el-Sheikh. And we also need to see them laying out how they will implement these targets. That's one important part of the puzzle. One of the big things that's
0: changed in the past year is Ukraine, which has obviously been a huge shock to the international system, as well as a catastrophe for Ukrainian people. But it has led, as the International Energy Agency is saying, to some much more rapid changes in energy behavior from com- from countries and governments, hasn't it, than we perhaps might have expected otherwise?
4: Yes, clearly the Russia's invasion of Ukraine has had all sorts of disastrous consequences. But I guess this is a bit of a beacon of, of hope that it has shaken up the global energy system. And we are seeing countries put in place policies and measures to enhance the transition away from fossil Fuels, And as the, IEA, um, as the IEA report shows, this is speeding up the transition away from these type of sources of energy. I took a couple of questions
0: online from people saying, what about Africa and about speeding up this transition there? And what is the U.S. doing in particular to help African countries get this new technology and look by the by at what China is doing? What did you make of that whole part of the discussion?
4: No, it's, it's clear that Kerry is very set on... Um, and putting pressure on all countries to to raise their game when it comes to emission reduction targets and that adaptation is also a big area of focus for the US administration. And he was mentioning these different deals that have been put in place to help countries like South Africa, for instance, that was announced last year in Glasgow and we're expecting a progress report on that at COP27 on, on how these economies can get out of fossil fuels and transition to more renewable forms of energy. So that was yeah something i took away from his remarks on that front Uh, One place where there did not seem to be any chance of a deal at all was this subject
0: of loss and damage. Countries saying, look, we are suffering right now billions and billions of dollars worth of damage from climate change that we have played no or very little part in causing. And what about richer countries who have been uh, belching out uh, fossil fuel emissions for, for ages? What about them paying us money to help with that? And we got a very firm answer from him, didn't we? This is what he had to say.
5: If it becomes just sort of liability and compensation and, and, and reparation or something, that's, that's not going to advance the, the dialogue. The dialogue has to advance around finding ways to address loss and damage. What will be the legitimate facility or financial arrangements, if you will, not facility but financial arrangements by which we go forward? Well, we have to put more into adaptation. We have to put more into development. I'm I'm convinced that if there was a more legitimate development process taking place, with the multilateral development banks more engaged and putting more money on the table, we'd have less of this, you know, angst and anger. And I understand. It is, and
0: the it anger. is it is anger, and yeah. it is a morally charged anger. Saying, look, what about some kind of reparations for the the damage suffered? And I, I was listening carefully as you're answering. And it seemed to me your first answer is, look, we're going to do a lot more about development and helping these, these, these countries no, with not, development I'm, I'm and I'm energy development, and then, and, the, and then adaptation. And then and then you started
5: saying, we will, have, we will have a facility. We will have a very, I'm sure, deeply engaged. We're already working at it. I mean, we're not sitting around waiting to go to Sharm el-Sheikh to begin the discussion. Mm. Our teams have been meeting and working on this very hard. Mm. And I think there is a very good meeting of minds beginning to gel as to how we can manage this. And I want to say very directly to to the media, don't come to Sharm El Sheikh looking for a storyline that says loss and damage is somehow ripping this place apart. It's not. It's not going to. We are not sitting on the outside of this dialogue. We are not resisting the notion that we have to deal with it. The dialogue, I mean, uh, there's already agreement about standing up the Santiago network. Mm. There's already agreement that we have to be having this discussion with intensity and and serious purpose. But there are complicated relationships here. Anna, you're
0: working on a big report from Chatham House to come out before the the summit um, on specifically this question. What did you make of what John Kerry said?
4: Yeah, I thought his answer was was interesting. It was pretty clear, wasn't it? Yeah, I l- mean, in l- the past, loss and damage has been this controversial topic. Developed countries have feared that they may might become liable to pay vast amounts in financial compensation. Actually, actually, for le- loss and leg- legally obliged yes. Yeah, that's been a fear. Yeah. But we saw the uh, Secretary Kerry saying today that they they do want to help address loss and damage, but that the question is how to do this so I, I think still it's unlikely that we'll see an agreement on a so-called loss and damage mm-hmm. finance facility which large parts of the developing world are pushing for at COP27 but perhaps we could see countries coming together and agreeing on a way forward on this issue We uh, have
0: had Germany making noises that it that it is sympathetic haven't we just in the past week or so
4: I mean I think this agenda is really moving forward we're expecting yeah, Germany which is leading the G7 of course this year to launch a new initiative to enhance financial protection for those suffering from loss and damage together with the V20 Climate Vulnerable Group of Nations uh, at COP27. So I think that will be one of the loss and damage deliverables, so to speak. I also think it was interesting how much Kerry sized the role of the MDBs just in to Just tell everyone what they are. The Multilateral Development Bank, so we talk exactly, about Exactly, the just Bank them, yes. And, uh, <laughs> the African Development Bank and yeah. so forth. Um, and I think they they also have a role to play in this loss and damage discussion potentially. It, it it's interesting
0: you say that because when I asked him this, what about this charge that, that poorer countries make of what are you going to do about this obligation that we feel you have? He said, well, we might put more into development. We really want to help them development. We want to help them transition away from older kinds of energy. And then he did say possibly we will discuss some kind of of, of facility and we'll talk about the money but what he didn't want and to give any ground on at all was any sense of obligation to do this Um, any kind of uh, obligation arising from the past and
4: I thought that was pretty strong statement is that how you read it as well? So when the Paris Agreement was adopted in 2015, there was this clause in the agreement's decision text, which said that this special article on loss and damage in the agreement didn't provide a basis for claiming compensation. And after that, we have seen the discussions on loss and damage shift quite a lot. And developed countries do seem to be a lot less apprehensive and a lot less nervous when it comes to liability and compensation, even if some, well, not everybody's quite there, there yet, so to speak. But so I that is still a red line for developed countries but I think the conversation is moving more towards how do we actually address this problem together. It's not so much about apportioning culpability anymore. It's more about how different countries can work together to find concrete hmm. solutions. And he is a former diplomat and he, he did talk a bit about
0: the need for US and China to come together, though not with, I, I I didn't feel, an awful lot of practical suggestion that that was going to happen in just 10 days' time. Let's just talk finally about what it is to be an envoy for climate. He's got this role created by Joe Biden. He's been in it since January 2021, the president's special envoy on this subject And I was pushing him a bit on what he feels he's got license to do. Does he feel he he, he came out and said, look, I think nuclear has got a big part to play pretty well everywhere. And I was saying, well, you're going to turn up in Germany and Japan and tell them to rethink their energy policies. And he seemed to say, this is maybe a kind of late stage uh, politician striding the world, but just saying, um, yes, I, I feel given the urgency of this, I will go and talk to anyone about what they are doing. But do you feel it's a useful role?
4: I do think it is really helpful when big economies like the U.S. step up. This was something that we were missing during the Trump years, that the U.S. essentially withdrew from the international space when it came to climate diplomacy. So I do think it is really helpful that the U.S. steps up. But its own credibility is, of course, key here. Uh, and I think it was really important that Congress managed to pass this Inflation Reduction Act, which is the biggest climate piece of climate legislation that has ever been passed in U.S. history. And that that came before COP27, where there's a strong focus on implementation and also before the midterm elections, which is, of course, a big question mark coming up when it comes to climate change and the US.
0: A really big question mark. And I've just come back from the US where that is pretty well all that people in these kind of circles are talking about. Well, we're going to have to leave it there and see what happens in Sharm. But as you said, John Kerry, a very fluent, passionate advocate for these things, and his job made slightly easier by the steps that the U.S. is taking in that direction at the moment. Anna, I'm going to release you now because it's your birthday, and I guess it's uh, not a bad way to celebrate it.
4: No, I'm turning 22. No, sorry, it's 32. But yes, I can think of no um, better present, I guess, as a climate nerd, to have John Kerry speaking on my birthday and to record this podcast with you, of course, Bronwyn.
0: Thank you very much. Well, we're coming to the end of the show. You can find all of our podcasts, that includes Climate Briefing and Africa Aware, and this one, of course, Independent Thinking, at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms, as well as through our social media channels. So do like us, follow us, subscribe. Please do leave us a review. I'm going to be saying this every week as it really helps us. And for all our work, or to become a member, don't forget to visit our website, At chathamhouse.org, where there's going to be a lot of work right now from our environment programme ahead of the COP summit, and you can also find the John Kerry live stream there. And you'll find all our thoughts there on very live questions, such as the significance of protests in Iran, the Brazil elections, and the forthcoming US midterm elections. Those may well be some of the questions we look at on Independent Thinking next week. But for now, I'm glad to be back from fielding jokes about Britain in other countries. See you next week.